Hey y'all, and welcome to Southern Fried Spooky, the podcast home of all things Southern, spooky, and this week, Wild West Historical. <laughs> I'm your Carolina girl, Heather. And I'm your Florida man, Tony. And we invite you to have a glass of sweet tea with us, and while you're enjoying it, please feel free to leave us some likes and five-star reviews. Come visit us at our Facebook page, or our Instagram, or join our Patreon. Indeed. I sound like a radio commercial. <laughs> okay, so today's topic is it entirely spooky? Well, not really spooky, just questionable. Well, it, it kind of falls in line with like our pirate episodes, but it does have a lot of, as you say, questionable crime. Yeah, and slightly confusing after death scenario. Yeah, like you know what what kind of podcast would we be if we did not have post mortem shenanigans? Right. We're going to look at a southern gentleman who led a very interesting life from eighteen fifty one to eighteen eighty seven. Mister John Henry Holiday, AKA better known Doc. Now, my father was always a history fan and loved talking about the Old West, mm-hmm. and Doc Holliday came up often in conversation along with Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, and the OK Corral. Yeah. Which, and, all of them were actually connected in a yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, so, they're all yeah. friends. And I understand that you like history bounty. Well, let's I just do. say you have a slightly better mustache than Doc Holliday, but only slightly. I do. I, I do enjoy... I, I don't want to say I enjoy the everything about the era, because, let's face it... It was a rough time. It was a rough time for a lot of people back then. Well, it's like you know how we get to play in the Renaissance. We have a very sanitized version of the Renaissance. Yeah, and I'd prefer we do to keep it Fair. that way. Yeah. You know, like, in actual Renaissance, there would be people dying in the streets. And, and lots of poop. And, yeah, and chamber pots. Yeah, so... And, and in the way, in, in almost in the same vein, like to say you would want to live in the Wild West is not a good idea. It would especially, be dangerous. Especially if your skin color was anything other than white. I guess it depends on where you are. Yeah. I imagine being white in some of the other places was also a bad yeah. idea. Speaking of, how many times have you thought about a million ways to die in the West? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> okay, oh my so God, that went down so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so on with the historical stuff. Yep. John Henry Holiday, better known as Doc Holiday, was an American gambler. Gunfighter and dentist. Indeed, yeah. It's like the two of those. One of these is not like the yeah. other. <laughs> yeah, one of these things does not belong. He's known as an associate of Wyatt Earp, mm-hmm. and he's best known for his role in, in the events leading up to and following the gunfight at the OK Corral. In Which Tombstone. technically it wasn't at the OK Corral. It was it kind was, of near it. It was next to the OK Corral. Yeah, I always wondered about that. But, I mean, I guess saying it in the newspaper's gunfight at the lot adjacent to the OK Corral just doesn't (laughs) sound right. Not quite snappy enough. And, of course, you know, that was convenient in naming all the films and things afterwards. Oh, yeah. Now, he had a reputation as having killed more than a dozen men. Uh, no. But modern researchers have concluded, like a lot of things we talk about, that uh, the legend has gotten bigger and Holiday himself... Might have only killed one to three men, because I mean, that's so like, much better. <laughs> it's, like, it's not saying it's, oh, that's so much better, but, I mean, it, you know, he's portrayed as being this hard like mass core, murderer. This hardcore <laughs> badass slinging his pistol at every other person, and it's just like, that's not what he was like. No, no not really. No. So, some family background. Yeah. Doc Holliday's father. Yeah. Not um, Doc Holliday. Henry B. Henry B. Yes. Holliday. I'm not sure what the B stands for, but he was a trained pharmacist. Yeah. 
He served in several wars, including the Cherokee Indian War. Mm -hmm. The Mexican-American War, of course. And uh, he was a major in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. He was. Um, After serving in the Mexican-American War, Mm -hmm. he returned to Griffin, Georgia. Which is actually about ten minutes outside Atlanta. Nice. Um, And he brought with him a boy named Francisco Hidalgo. Mm Mm-hmm. On January 8th, 1849, major holiday. That mm-hmm. sounds like you're talking about Christmas or 4th of July. Right. Um, married Alice. Oh, wait. We have a Jane major McKay. holiday coming up, don't we? <laughs> One of the high holy days. Right. Alice Jane McKay. And within just a year, they had a daughter, Martha El- Eleonora, who died in infancy. Who died in infancy. Because it's, well, the 1800s. Yep. Which uh, was not an uncommon occurrence back then. No, no, unfortunately. Until very recently, I think in most of history, dying in infancy was pretty common. Oh, yeah. On August 14th, 1851, Mm -hmm. John Henry Holliday was born. Yep. He was baptized at the First Presbyterian Church of Griffin in 1852. I don't know why that's pertinent, but it is something that is good to know, I guess. He wasn't a complete heathen. Well, no. (laughs) And I'd be he, okay with that if you want. He was an absolute mama's boy as well, so... Well, yeah, we can get to that, too. Um, in 1864, mm-hmm. his family moved to Valdosta, Valdosta. Georgia. Vidalia. No, that's... <laughs> Vidalia! Where his father would be elected mayor. When John, it sounds so weird to call him that, was just 15, his mother died of consumption, which Tuber- is tuberculosis. tuberculosis, on September 16th, 1866. Now, this was a terrible blow to him because his relationship, as you have alluded to with his mother, was very close. Very, very close. I mean, I don't want to sound creepy close, but... (laughs) Not quite, like, psycho level of... He did, like, take care of her constantly and, like, doted on her, I guess you could say. But he didn't keep her, like, mummified remains in the basement? No, 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 no. Okay, not that bad. No. And, compounding his loss, his father remarried... Three months later. Yep. To Rachel Martin. Rachel Martin. And again, that was also not very uncommon. Just the remarrying quickly. Oh, yeah, getting remarried very quickly. Especially if there were children around. Yeah. Well, back then, a lot of men really couldn't take care of themselves, I guess. I guess. (laughs) Actually, what it is is for an upstanding gentleman to be widowed and taking care of his kids was kind of looked down upon, mm. and he was a rather upstanding gentleman. By so, upstanding, you mean like well-to-do, yes, and yeah. he was a mayor, yeah, he was... like Henry B., like it was almost a vital... Aristocratic ne- kind Yeah, of it was almost a vital necessity that he get married again. A social expectation. Yeah. So Holiday studied at the, well, you want to say it? Valdosta. Valdosta Institute. Mm-hmm. Where he received a classical education in rhetoric, something we don't even touch anymore. Which, I, I wish we would go back into it a little bit. Right? We have to teach people how to write. First. Uh, he also Grammar, learned, like, math, yep. history, and languages. Particularly Latin. And French. And ancient Greek. So, if you've watched the fabulous film of Tombstone, Tombstone there is this yeah. wonderful verbal showdown between Doc and Johnny Ringo. Yes. And I... he played a little clip of it on YouTube not too long ago. So rather than gunplay, they fire back and forth with wicked quips and famous quotes in multiple languages. It's it's really fun. Yeah. And we know Veritas. Credat Judas Sotella non ego. 
Eventus Stultorum. Magister. In pace requiescata. Come on, boys. We don't want any trouble in here, not in any language. Us Latin, doll. Evidently, Mr. Ringo's an educated man. How I really hate him. In 1870, mm-hmm. the then 19-year-old Holiday left home for Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Um, he was a he was a man of the of the state, I guess you could say. He did like to travel. Yeah, huh? he he was a very traveled person. Oh, that's good. Yep. I mean, I think so. I mean, a lot of people didn't go either. They went across the country, or they just sort of stayed put. You know. Yep. So, in 1872, he was 20, and well, he received his Doctor of Dental Surgery degree from... At 20. Yes. Yes. From the Pennsylvania College of Dental Surgery. I hadn't really thought about that being an odd thing, but the school had to hold his degree until, until he turned 21. Until he turned 21, so he could open up his own practice. Because that was the minimum age required to, to practice. He was actually considered a genius, even by today's standards. That's fascinating. Yes. So, Holiday then moved... He moved a lot, as you yeah, He really did. Moved to St. Louis, Missouri, so yep. he could work as an assistant for his classmate, a Jameson Fuchs it, Jr. It, yeah, Fudge. it looks like Fuchs. I don't know. It, it's I think he pronounces it Futch. Let's uh, hope so. Yeah. If you pronounce it otherwise, it could get messy. Four months later, yeah, um, at the end of July, he relocated to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So he's back in Georgia. Back in Georgia. Where he joined a dental practice. And he lived with his uncle and his family so he could build up his own practice. And a few weeks before his birthday, dentist Arthur C. Ford advertised in the Atlanta papers that Holiday would substitute for him while Ford was attending meetings. Yep. Special dental media cons, I guess. Dental cons. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say. Well, yeah, well, what people would know as cons. But Conference, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he set up practice in Griffin, Georgia, back where he was born. Back where he was born. But then he was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Yep. And presumably he acquired it while he was tending to his mother while she was still contagious with it. Um, A lot of people have said that he was born with it. That is also possible. I mean, maybe, maybe it just didn't manifest. Until- maybe it's Maybelline. I don't know. Like, <laughs> no, what it is is, um, in in some cases, tuberculosis can be passed can be passed on in utero. Yeah, and they don't. It doesn't develop till later in life. And there's speculation either he got it from his mom when mm-hmm. he was taking care of her, or because she already had it when she was pregnant with him. Yeah. So, it, or it was you know passed on. But at any rate, they didn't diagnose it yeah, in him yeah, until, until his early 20s. Yeah. And he was given only a few months to live because TB was pretty bad. Oh, yeah. Um, but he was told that a drier and warmer climate, which if you are not familiar with the South, dry and, um, well, we are pretty warm, but not very dry. Yeah. The air is What they heavy. meant was less humid. <laughs> yeah, no humidity. <laughs> no. I have been out to visit Las Vegas once, and I, as soon as I stepped out of the airplane, I felt my nasal passages it's dry a, up. It's a different kind of heat. It's horrifying. It, it is, it is. <laughs> there, there, There is this, like, I guess this rotoscope of heat, and it's like... You have. You mean like a spectrum? <laughs> well, no, no, no. I, I only say rotoscope okay. because. Okay. Because in the South, you have heat plus humidity. Yeah. But if you stay in the Southern states, you lose the humidity and get really dry, but you get a little hotter. It's a different thing. But up north, you don't have heat, but you have humidity in the east. And as you go west, you lose the humidity and you gain nothing but the cold. So it's like. I wonder where, like, as you get out towards the Pacific if you get back to humidity because they're, you know, the other 
the other ocean. Uh, uh, Washington, uh, around Washington, like, I've been into Washington State. It's humid there. Okay. Like, it, So, if you're in the middle of the country, you're good. Rains, yes. Yo, I had heard that, yes. Um, he was told that a drier and warmer climate mm-hmm. might slow the deterioration of his health. So he headed to the American Southwest, hoping it would ease his symptoms, and he moved and became a gambler, which was apparently a reputable profession in Arizona at yeah. the time. He, well, as you know, that's that, that was actually a stated profession, was gambler. Hey, whatever works. Yep. You went to school to be a dentist, and I see you're practicing at the card table. Okay. Well, okay, there's some speculation about that. <laughs> There is the whole thing of him saying, or him being diagnosed with tuberculosis, and his partner pretty much going, we cannot work together anymore. And people coming to him and saying, you cannot have a practice anymore because you have tuberculosis. But then a couple of other people, some historians, myself included, believe that it wasn't because he had tuberculosis. It was because of his crippling gambling addiction and alcohol addiction. And we will get back to that in just a moment. When he arrived in Dallas, Holiday partnered with a friend of his, of, well, a friend of his father's, Dr. John A. Seeger. And they won awards for their dental work at the annual fair of the North Texas Agricultural, Mechanical, and Bloodstock Association. That is a mouthful. I'd hate to paint that banner. At the Dallas County Fair. And they received, get this, all three awards. Best set of teeth in gold. Best in vulcanized rubber. Wouldn't you like to have that trophy? Wow. And best set of artificial teeth and dental wear. Here at the (laughs) N-T-A-M-B-F-A. And then they dissolved the practice. I'm not sure why. In 1874. Afterward, Holiday had his own practice over the the Dallas County Bank at the corner of Main and Lamar Streets, Mm -hmm. in case you needed to know that. Now, here's where we go back to the, you know, coughing spells at inappropriate times from the tuberculosis did not go unnoticed by his clients, most likely, and his dental practice slowly declined. Though, as has been suggested, it could have been the drinking. Yeah. You know, that self-medicating. It it could have been the drinking. Now, would you say he had a crippling gambling addiction, or did he, or was that his pastime slash job? I think it was, he didn't have a a gambling addiction. He was a gambler, like he was, but I think it was more... It was his primary source of income. But it was his self-medicating that kind of turned a lot of people off. Now, (laughs) well, despite the fact that it was a reputable kind of thing to do in some states, in May of 1874, Holiday and 12 others were indicted in Dallas for illegal Illegal gambling. gambling. Yep. So he moved his offices to Denison, Texas, but after being fined for gambling in Dallas, he left the state. Now, at this point, he was thin and weak, and he knew that a gambling career is a little dangerous as a profession, requiring that he have the means to protect himself. Yeah. So, dedicated, he started practicing with a six-shooter and a long, wicked knife. Yep. Honing his skills. Uh, now, also, keep in mind, uh, he was not a big person. Okay. He was, I think, I believe at most, they said he was like 5'9", so my height, but he was pretty skinny. Well, yeah, especially after because being of, sick. Uh, because of tuberculosis. Yeah. So he kind of needed that weapon. He so yes, he because didn't. as a gambler, you're gonna get you're gonna get crap for 
for a lot of things being True. called a cheat, stuff like that. Uh-huh. So, of course, you're going to have to have a way of protecting yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think as often as he's been portrayed in film, you know, TV, movies, whatever, you know, it's kind of hard to really make a person look like they're actually very, very sick with tuberculosis. So he tends to look average height, average yeah. weight. Yeah. I think even the Val Kilmer one, they just made him look kind of ghostly. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> I mean, they kind of... Well, Val Kilmer wasn't a big, muscular dude anyway. Well, which, no. Which, but, I mean, they just kind of paled what him out. What aristocratic gentlemen would be. <laughs> yes, they, they kind of made him very pale. They made him look like he was sweating to death yeah. and told him to cough a lot. It worked. Yep. So he headed to Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Or Colorado, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Right. Following the stage routes and gambling at towns and army outposts along the way. During the summer of 1875... He was dedicated to the circuit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He settled in Denver under the alias Tom Mackey. Now, mm-hmm. that's something I had not heard mm-hmm. before. And he found work as a pharaoh dealer. I want to say it pharaoh. Pharaoh dealer for John A. Babb's theater... Okay, it says theater comique. I can't help but go théâtre comique, because I'm a French major. Yeah. Um, on Blake Street. Again, I'm sure you're going to look up the address here. Yeah. And he left when he learned about gold being discovered in Wyoming. It's like any place you mention, he's only there for like a minute, and then he moves on. Well, he only stayed for a couple of years at each place and moved on. True. February 1876, he arrived in Cheyenne, Wyoming, mm-hmm. worked as a dealer for Bab's partner, Thomas Miller. Like Just so many names that you're going to hear once and never again. Yeah. Who owned the Bella Union Saloon. In the autumn of 1876, Miller relocated the Bella Union to Deadwood, Deadwood. South Dakota, which was the site of the gold rush in Dakota Territory. And Holiday went with him. Indeed. He is just kind of a globe-trotting little little gentleman there, isn't he? Yep. 1877, Holiday went to Breckenridge. I promise it gets more interesting very soon. (laughs) (laughs) Texas, where he engaged in his lucrative pastime of gambling. Um, on July 4th, 1877, he, after a disagreement with gambler Henry Kahn... Yep, Henry Kahn. Holiday beat him soundly with his walking stick. Both men were arrested and fined, but Kahn was not finished. Later that same day, he shot and seriously wounded the unarmed Holiday. Yep. On July 7th, the Dallas Weekly Herald incorrectly reported that Holiday well, had, been had been actually killed, yeah. <laughs> Rumors of my death are gravely <laughs> exaggerated. His cousin, George Henry Holiday, moved west to help him recover. How very sweet and dedicated. I believe this was the incident in where he says one of my favorite historical lines ever. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, so, of course, when he, like, him and the guy got into an argument. Right. And he beat the guy uh-huh. Silly with his cane. Yeah. And when the law showed up and held a gun, they were like, what happened? And he says, and I quote, it would appear this gentleman had missed a grand opportunity to keep his mouth shut. Well said. <laughs> so once he recovered from that incident, yeah. Holiday relocated again to Fort Griffin, Texas. Yep. While dealing cards at John Shansi's saloon, he met. Aha. Uh-huh. Kate. Mary Catherine Elder, Big AKA, Nose Kate AKA, Horony. A.K.A. Big Nose. What a terrible name for her. Well, the, uh, she was um, the nosy sort, as ah, it yes. were. A dance hall woman and occasional prostitute. She was educated, mm-hmm. but she chose to work as a prostitute because she liked her independence. And apparently it gained her a lot of money. Yeah. 
Yeah, like it, there's a reason women do that, you know, especially if they don't really want to get married or tie down or have someone tell them what to do. Oh, and trust me, she was not the type to tie down. <laughs> Tough, stubborn, and fearless is a quote yeah. that describes her. But she's the only woman with whom Holiday is known to have had a relationship. If you could call it that. They had a very tempestuous, up-and-down, stormy kind of thing going oh, yeah. on. Oh, yeah. So, in October 1877, outlaws led by Dirty Dave Rudabaugh. Rudabaugh, yep. What a great name, Dirty Dave. Robbed a Santa Fe Railroad construction camp in Kansas. Sounds more like a porn star. Than it I... does. Rudabaugh fled south into Texas. Mm-hmm. Wyatt Earp, you might have heard of him yes. before. You, you may have heard of him. A little name. Yeah. We, yeah, we don't know what happened to him. Was yeah. given a temporary commission as Deputy U.S. Marshal. Mm-hmm. Earp followed Rudaba over 400 miles. To Fort Griffin. Which is a frontier on the clear fork of the Brazos River. Yeah. Earp went to the Beehive Saloon. Which... which the largest in town. Which, ironically, largest in town, but half of it was sort of built into a tent. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> because they hadn't finished completing it yet. Oh, and it was owned by John Shauncey, who we mentioned like a page or two back. Yeah. <laughs> and whom Earp had met in Wyoming. Shauncey told Earp that Rudabaugh had passed through town earlier, but he didn't know where he was headed, and suggested that Earp ask gambler Doc Holliday, who had been who had played cards with Rudabaugh. And Holliday apparently didn't mind telling him he was under the impression that Rudabaugh was returning to Kansas. John. I'd like you to meet a friend of mine, White Earp. Wide up. I've heard that name somewhere. Don't know where, but it wasn't good. You mind if we sit down? I'm looking for Dave Rudabaugh. There's a reward for information about him if it leads to his arrest. Are you a lawman, Wide up? You are not wearing a badge. Are you ashamed of your profession? I myself was a dentist. I was proud to be a dentist. I did not hide the fact that I was a dentist. How are your teeth, Wide up? They're working all right, I guess. I'll take good care of them. They cannot be replaced. I am no longer a dentist. <clears throat> I'm a sporting man. That is my work now. In Georgia, we were taught that a man should take pride in his work. Have you ever been to Georgia? Wide up. Beautiful state, Georgia. Very green. I was forced to leave Georgia. I fear that I will never see it again. I'm sorry. Do you believe in friendship, Wide up? So do I. Do you have many friends? John here has been a friend of me when most men would not. Dave Rudabaugh is an ignorant scoundrel. I disapprove of his very existence. I considered ending it myself on several occasions, but self-control got the better of me. So Earp sent a telegram to Ford County Sheriff Bat Masterson that Rudabaugh might be headed in his direction. I feel like people need, like, diagrams and such to keep track of right. all of this. And by the way, Bat Masterson, his real name was, like, Bartholomew, and they I just guess, called him Bat. Bat sounds awesome. Yeah. I want to be nicknamed Bat. <laughs> After about a month in Fort Griffin, Earp returned to Fort Clark, mm-hmm. and in early 1878, he went to Dodge City. I guess this is the, the famous get-out-of-dodge. Let's get-out-of-dodge, <laughs> Yeah where he became the assistant city marshal, serving under Charlie Bassett. During the summer of 1878, Holiday and... How do you say her last name? Horony? It's Horony. That's so close it to sounds, It sounds like horny, but it's Horony. H-O-R-O-N-Y. Yeah. 
or Harani, however you want to say it. I don't know. That's why I'm asking. Holiday and Harani, Kate, also arrived in Dodge City, where they stayed at Deacon Cox's, what a lovely name, boarding house as Dr. and Mrs. John H. Holiday. Holiday sought to practice dentistry again. Basically, they had this sort of agreement of he'll settle down if she'll settle down. Yeah. It didn't really last that long. And he ran an advertisement in the local paper. Quote, Dentistry. John H. Holiday, dentist, very respectfully offers his professional services to the citizens of Dodge City and the surrounding county during the summer. Office at room number 24, Dodge House. Where satisfaction is not given, money will be refunded. End quote. <laughs> Big Nose Kate yeah. coped with the shackles of respectability for about three months before she got bored and returned to the bright lights of the saloons. Yeah. Doc was livid that at Kate for, well, using this proper, respectable name of Mrs. John H. Holiday and for making such a spectacle of herself. Her shenanigans were a terrible blow to his pride, and he decided he didn't want to settle down either, so down came the dentistry shangle. Yep. A little bit of up and down there, I guess. Indeed. Now, according to accounts of Mm -hmm. the following event, reported by Glenn Boyer, who wrote, I married Wyatt Earp. (laughs) Not himself, but someone else. Yeah. Earp had run into two cowboys, Toby Driscoll and Ed Morrison, out of Wichita earlier in 1878. Now, during the summer, the two cowboys and about two dozen of their closest friends rode into Dodge and shot up the town. So they entered the Long Branch Saloon, vandalized it, harassed the customers. Hearing the commotion, Earp burst through the front door, but before he could react, you'd think he would be prepared for this. Yeah. Um, a large number of the cowboys were pointing their guns at him. Yep. Now, in another version, there were only like three to five. We don't know. Yeah. But in both stories, Holiday had been playing cards in the back of the room, and he drew his weapon and put his pistol right up to Morrison's head, forcing him and his men to disarm, rescuing Earp from a, well, bad situation. Yep. No account of any such confrontation was ever reported by the Dodge City newspapers, but whatever actually happened, Earp credited Holiday with saving his life that day, and the two became friends. Well, I mean, you're not going to say, oh, there was almost a shootout. People yeah. Aren't gonna re- people aren't going to read that. No, no. Like, you know, Deputy Sheriff Wilder burst in. There was almost a shootout, but it didn't happen. Well, okay, I, it's I not mean, to say that it didn't happen, but you're right. You know, sometimes people don't report the stuff that's a little underwhelming. We have a lot of history right. lost that way. He walks, in, he walks in, busts open the door, guns are drawn. All of a sudden, Morrison's met with a pistol behind his head. It's diffused. Everybody walks away. No one talks about it. Yeah. <laughs> so who saw something? Nah, I didn't see anything. Yeah. So Holiday developed a bit of a reputation for his skill with a gun as well as with the cards. A few days before Christmas in 1878, Doc and Kate, I guess they're back together, yeah. arrived in Las Vegas, New Mexico. There were 22 hot springs near the town that are favored by individuals with tuberculosis for their alleged healing powers. Not sure if that's true or not. So Doc once again opened the dental practice and continued gambling. Mm -hmm. But this winter was unseasonably cold and business was slow. Now keep in mind Doc Holliday was not the, um, how do I say it in the way he would say it, he was not um, partial to flats of fancy, but he would try anything to help out. (laughs) 
The New Mexico Territorial Legislature passed a bill banning gambling within the territory with surprising ease. So on March 8, 1879, Holiday was indicted for keeping a gaming table and fined $25. That doesn't sound like a lot now. No. But back then, that was quite a bit. Uh, yeah. Uh, later on, there's a thing where $5 then would be the equivalent of about 150 now. Yeah, so... So do your math. That's a lot. In Dodge City, well, the ban on gambling combined with the low temperatures kind of persuaded him to return to Dodge City for a few months. While in Dodge City, Holiday joined a team being formed by Deputy U.S. Marshal... Bat Masterson. Masterson. That's just fun to say. Masterson had been... Now, this is a little complicated, but we'll try to kind of narrow it down. Yeah. He'd been asked to prevent an outbreak of guerrilla warfare. Darn those guerrillas. Between the... And I can't help but sing this in my mind. The Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe Railway. And the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad. The DNRGW. That is not easier to say. Oh, and they would fight it out, too. They were vying to be the first to claim the right-of-way across the Royal Gorge, one of the few natural routes through the Rockies that cross the Continental Divide. Obviously, both were striving to be the first rail access to the boomtown of Leadville, Colorado. That's sort of like whoever controls the port gets all the money. Yeah, and, and I mean, they would physically fight it out. There would be brawls in the street and killings because of these things. Royal Gorge was a bottleneck along the Arkansas, too narrow for both railroads, which would be kind of foolish anyway, and there were no other reasonable access to this to the South Park area. South Park, really? Doc remained going there down for, South Park, gonna have myself a time. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Doc remained there for about two and a half months, and the federal intervention prompted the so-called Treaty of Boston to end the fighting. The Denver and Rio Grande completed its line and leased it for use by the Santa Fe. Mm. Holiday took home a share of a $10,000 bribe paid by the D and RGW to Masterson to give up their possession of the Santa Fe Roundhouse and return to Las Vegas where Kate was waiting. Now, I don't know how much a portion of $10,000 was. I mean, that could be anything from, well... Here's 75 cent to yeah, here's to, five grand. Right? We don't know how much that is, but it was yeah. enough, I'd say. The Santa Fe Railroad built tracks to Las Vegas, New Mexico, but bypassed the city by about a mile. A new town was built up near the tracks, and prostitution and gambling flourished there. Woohoo! Holiday paid $372.50 to a carpenter to build a clabbered house or a building to house Doc Holiday's saloon with John Webb as his partner. Which is still there, by the way. Cool. Yeah. Now, back then, keep in mind, cities followed the tracks. So wherever the rail, like wherever the railroad was going, you would find more cities built along those railroads than you would anywhere else. For the same reason, you would see cities and towns built up along the the river. Any yeah. kind of transportation route would make sense. Oh yeah. So it appeared that Holiday and Kate were settling into life into Las Vegas. I guess you know temporarily for them. New Mexico, not Nevada. When Wyatt Earp arrived in October of 1879. He told Holiday he was headed for the silver boom going on in Tombstone. They're always finding new metals in Tombstone in Arizona Territory. So Holiday and Kate joined Wyatt and his wife Maddie, as well as Jim Earp, 
and his wife and stepdaughter. Mm -hmm. And they all left the next day for Prescott, Arizona Territory. They arrived with... Now, keep in mind, the reason you're saying territory is it wasn't a state just yet. Not yet. They arrived within a few weeks and went straight to the home of Constable Virgil Earp and his wife, Allie. Holiday and Kate checked into a hotel, and when Wyatt, Virgil, and James Earp, with their wives, left for Tombstone, Holiday remained in Prescott, where he thought the gambling opportunities were better. That's where he got his silver. Right. right off the table. Holiday finally joined the Earps in Tombstone in September of 1880. Um, some accounts report that the Earps sent for Holiday for assistance with dealing with the outlaw cowboys. This is kind of like with a capital C. Well, that, that's what they called themselves, the cowboys. And Holiday quickly became embroiled in the local politics and the violence that led up to the infamous gunfight at the OK Corral. Or the lot adjacent to the OK Corral. <laughs> <laughs> the little 30-second skirmish. Yes. Oh, yeah, it lasted all of, like, 26 seconds. It was over really quickly. Well, I mean, when there's gunfighting, 26 seconds is a lot, but... Yeah. I mean, still. It, Again, it, in the movies, they always it's like this 10-minute spiel. Yeah, there's, like, this long 10-minute battle of, you know, like, two little guys shooting each other forever, and, like, they have <laughs> to reload constantly. No, this was over very quickly. So we have a little aside here. Yeah. Holiday and Kate had many fights. They really did. And after one such argument, Holiday kicked her out. It seems to happen a lot. I was like, he kicked her out a couple of times. And, and I'm pretty sure she kind of just left a few times. Yeah. County Sheriff Johnny Behan. Behan. Yep. B-E-H-A-N. Yep. And Milt Joyce, both members of the 10% ring, which I don't know what that means, but now I'm interested. They saw an opportunity and exploited the situation. They plied Horany with more liquor and coaxed her to sign an affidavit implicating Holiday in an attempted robbery and murder of passengers aboard a stagecoach. Yep. That happened in March of 1881. So... And it was carrying 26,000 in silver bullion. That's like almost a million dollars. I think... As of 2021, that was $730,000. Yeah, like, I mean, that is a a lot of money. That is a fair amount. So, Bob Paul, again, more names that you'll only hear once or twice, was working as the Wells Fargo shotgun messenger. Yes, Yes. Wells Fargo went back that far. Wells Fargo was that old. They used to deliver mail, of course, Uh but they also used to deliver packages and would move money around. Wells Fargo did a lot. So, anyone who's ever driven with friends you know they're like i call shotgun would you like to explain what that actually means okay shotgun means you are not the person staging the horses you're the guy driving as it were you are the guy who is actually holding on to a gun and watching around to make sure no one is about to rob you that is (laughs) highwaymen indians shall we say the cowboys (laughs) so when you say i got shotgun Back then, that means you would be armed and you would be ready to deal with any problems that come up because the stagecoach driver could not stop. And nowadays, shotgun means you handle the fast food orders and you adjust the music accordingly. Yes. And maps. You you have to oh, occasionally absolutely. deal with maps and GPS, but still. So, mm-hmm. so he had taken the... Okay, back to Bob Paul. He yeah. was shotgun. He had taken the reins and the driver's seat in Contention City because the usual driver, a well-known and popular man named... Eli Philpot was ill. Paul was riding in Philpot's place as shotgun, so they just switched, when three cowboys stopped the stage between Tombstone and Benson, Arizona, and tried to rob it. 
So Paul fired his shotgun at the robbers, wounding a cowboy, later identified as Bill Leonard, in the groin. Oh, yeah. Philpot and passenger Peter Rorig, riding in the rear seat, were both shot and killed. Holiday was a good friend of Leonard, the one who got shot in the groin. Yeah. He was a former watchmaker from New York. Based on the affidavit sworn by Horony, Judge Wells Spicer, that does not even sound like a real name, right? issued a warrant or an arrest warrant for Holiday. And rumors flew that Holiday had taken part in the shooting and the murders. And the Earps found witnesses who could attest to Holiday's location elsewhere at the time of the stagecoach murders. And a sober Kate confessed that Behan and Joyce had influenced her to sign a document she did not even understand. With the cowboy plot revealed, Spicer freed Holiday, and the district attorney dismissed the charges, labeling them as ridiculous, and Holiday gave Kate some money and put her on a stage out of town. It told her to get the hell out. I can't say as I really blame him. She kind of got him in, well, in trouble. Well, she threw him under the proverbial stagecoach. Right. Why he wasn't even near it. Kind of rude. And yet, they got back together later on. Yeah. I don't know how much longer or later on, but eh, they have that way. Yep. We could call this the definitive on-again, off-again relationship. It seemed to work for both of them. <laughs> you know, it was very convenient when they wanted one. Yeah. One of them got tired of the other, they kick him out. Yep. So... We're still in 1881. Yes. Virgil Earp was both a deputy U.S. marshal mm-hmm. and Tombstone City, well, Tombstone's city police chief. I don't know. I mean, that sounds kind of lofty, but was Tombstone even, was it like just a few shacks or? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Tombstone was big. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, keep in mind, Tombstone back then, I believe, had five roads, five streets. I that, mean, that, I mean that, that makes it pretty big. <laughs> In my mind, it sort of vacillates between, like, the film of Tombstone and Blazing Saddles. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, go blame it. I said the shit. He received reports that cowboys with whom they had had repeated confrontations were armed in violation of the city ordinance that required them to, I fail to see how this would happen, to deposit their weapons at a saloon or stable soon after arriving in town. Yeah. It's sort of like you go to a party and you put your car keys in the, this big bucket. Like, here, take my guns. Plink. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, so this is the way it worked. Okay. They had lock boxes. Oh, okay, that makes and sense. And when they get, like, say you had a pistol and you handed it to me. I would take your pistol, wrap a ticket around it, drop it, hand you the corresponding ticket. So, it's okay, it's like hat check. Yes, yeah, a, a, a hat or coat checking. Just imagine Valet it like parking. That. Yeah, just imagine it like that. You had the corresponding ticket, but if you lost that ticket, you lost your gun. That would be a problem. Yes. Okay. Okay, it still sounds kind of silly, but when they just say that as depositing your... But okay, that makes sense, though. Okay. So, these guys came in and they did not deposit their guns. Because there was a city ordinance that you were not to be armed while out on the street in Tombstone. And also, the Cowboys had repeatedly threatened the Earps and Holiday, because that sounds safe. Yeah, right. So fearing trouble, Virgil temporarily deputized Holiday and sought backup from his brothers, Wyatt and Morgan, which I guess which back you then see was totally lot, legal, right? Yeah, and, and you see, you see, well, nepotism! Right. But you see that a lot in the movie. They don't talk about James. Yeah, I was like, that's not a name I'm yeah, very familiar yeah, with. Yeah, I mean, there were five Earp brothers, and they only talk about three of them. Sort of like and the And I believe brothers. there was an Earp sister as well. 
So yeah, I mean, just as a test, how many people can name all five of the Marx Brothers? Oh, there you go. But what I'm saying is, you hear a lot about Morgan and Virgil, uh, and and Virgil in the, and you see it in Tombstone, but you don't see James. Yeah, it's like a, yeah. I'm like, oh, was he? <laughs> what is it? He's sort of like the um, Will Smith has like what a th- like a second or a third son who's like just totally not even mentioned ever. Right. So Virgil got himself a short coach gun. Which I'm also not sure what that is. Okay. It's like, a, <laughs> it's like someone takes a rifle, cuts off the butt, cuts off the stock so it's about this big, and you just kind of hold on to it. You see it in Terminator 2 when he flips it around. <laughs> oh, okay. So, that, fancy word for sawed-off that, shotgun. Well, that's a coach rifle, yes. <laughs> when someone says a trench coat has a shotgun pocket, that's what it is. Oh. Yes. Okay, admittedly, I've not heard that before, but that's kind of awesome. So he got his coach gun Mm -hmm. from the Wells Fargo office, and the four of them went to find the cowboys. So on Fremont Street, which of course I think of as Las Vegas, they ran into Cochise County Sheriff Behan, I assume the same one. That is John Behan, yes. The same one who kind of had a little fun with Holiday. Yep. Who told them or implied that he had disarmed the cowboys. To avoid alarming citizens and lessen tension when disarming the cowboys, because I guess Virgil did not believe him, Virgil gave the coach gun to Holiday. Who promptly put it underneath his coat. Because he had the big long duster. Yep. And Holiday gave Virgil his walking stick. Just trade things, I guess. So the lawman found the cowboys in a narrow lot on Fremont Street between Fly's boarding house and the Harwood house. Yep. And this is where we get to the OK Corral. Yes. Near there. Because, it, okay, see, this is yeah. the way it worked. Had you rounded <laughs> Hang the- on, I just had this thought of the fight, the gunfight, the 30-second the gunfight, in a narrow lot on Fremont Street between Fly's Boarding House and the Harwood House. Okay, so this is, <laughs> this is, this is how it would work. I, I've even looked up the map for it. Okay. If you were to walk around the corner between the two, between the inn and, I forget, the, the, uh, the Harwood House... You would be looking at the, I believe there were five or six cowboys, and just beyond that would be the OK Corral. Okay, so it was like, okay, so it was at just the end of the street. Well, no, 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 like, it was like an empty, imagine an empty building Mm -hmm. area, like a lot, and then beyond that lot is the OK Corral. Fair enough. Yes. So, here again, we're going to start tossing out some names that you'll hear once or twice. Yeah. Holiday. We know that name. Yes, we know him. Yes. Killed Tom McLaurie with a shotgun blast to the side of his chest. That sounds really quite devastating. Holiday was grazed by a bullet, possibly on a, on fired... On his hip. Okay. Possibly fired by Frank McLaurie, who was on Fremont Street at the time. Now, witnesses say McLaurie got a, quote, late advantage on Holiday during the 30-second fight and declared, I got you now, you son of a bitch, as he leveled a gun at him. And Holiday answered... You're a daisy if you do. Which, according to Gary Roberts, who is one of the biographers for Doc Holiday, basically, if you don't know what that means, it's good for you. Yeah, that means, <laughs> well, good for you, bro. Like, that's what it means. Well, McClory did not have the drop on him. I guess announcing it kind of does kill the, the uh, advantage. And Holiday escaped unharmed. Yeah, McClory he- died of shots to his stomach and behind his ear. Holiday may also have wounded Billy Clinton. Which a lot of people may know that name. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, this was kind of like the whole thing, right? That was all that happened. Yeah, that's pretty much all that happened. Like, I think like three McClory's died. 
or two McClary's died, and... Is it McClory or McClary? McClary, I believe. Okay. Did the Earps even do anything? No, there was a lot of gunfire. And then it was done, and then three people lay dead. One of them were injured. Like, I mean. And I guess they have to try to. And of course, forensics being not great back then, I'm not sure if they could figure out who shot whom, but and it seems like Holiday did most of the actual shooting was, of people. There was one report that. And it. I was looking up old newspaper articles about this, cool. and there was one that says, one, I can't, I don't know the guy's name, but one of the cowboys literally took his pistol, threw it up into the air, and said, I'm not armed! Yeah, and that got, worked well. <laughs> like, and just kind of skulked away. <laughs> when danger reared his ugly head, Sir Robin bravely turned and fled. <laughs> now, two months later or so, Yep. In December of 1881, Virgil Earp was ambushed and permanently injured. And following that, Morgan Earp was ambushed and, and killed, killed yeah. in March the uh, following. Virgil was shot in the shoulder back here, and he permanently lost the use of his arm. Oh, that that's not good. Yep. And of course, the cowboy or the remaining cowboys were identified by witnesses as suspects. Mm-hmm. Additional circumstantial evidence also pointed to their involvement. So a lot of people were just going, yeah, they did it. Wyatt Earp had been appointed deputy U.S. Marshal after Virgil was maimed. He deputized Holiday, Warren Earp, that's another one I hadn't that's, heard there's of. There's Warren right there. Sherman McMaster and Turkey Creek Jack Johnson. Well, Turkey Creek's a place, but yeah. It's like you don't, Sounds like it should be a drink. Well, yeah. It's, you, you just There's two things that you're going to have to learn about the Wild West. One, people are named after cities and places. Or and, large body parts? Yeah, and two, don't ever play cards with those people. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> After Morgan's murder, Wyatt Earp and his deputies guarded Virgil Earp and Allie, I guess his wife, yep. on their way to the train for Colton, California, where their father lived, to recuperate from the serious shotgun wound. Now, you see that in the movie where he's going off and he kind of waves and he's got Clanton, Ike Clanton down on the ground and he's yeah. like, then he lets him go in that famous line, you tell him I'm coming, that line. You called down the thunder, well now you got it. You see that? It says United States Marshal. What? Please don't kill me, please. please. Take a good look at him, Ike, because that's how you're going to end up. The cowboys are finished, you understand me? I see a red sash, I killed a man wearing it. So run, you cur. Uh, run! Tell all the other curs the lie's coming. You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Interesting. In Tucson, which for the life of me looks like Tucson, yep. on March 20th, 1882, the group spotted an armed Frank Stilwell and reportedly Ike Clanton hiding go. among the railroad cars, apparently lying in wait and waiting with the intent to kill Virgil. Frank Stilwell's body was conveniently found at dawn alongside <laughs> the railroad tracks, riddled with buckshot and gunshot wounds. Multiple gunshot wounds. I mean, they... Upwards of 20 shots. So they, like, did the whole Bonnie and Clyde like, thing. Like, they're... <laughs> they perforated him, is what like, they're saying. Yeah, like, when they found his body, according to the newspapers, when they found his body, they had trouble identifying him. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of a lot for back then. Yeah. Now, Wyatt said later in life, I presume in one of these old biographies of his, that he killed Stillwell with a shotgun. 
Or several shotguns. I don't know. <laughs> Tucson Justice of the Peace, Charles Meyer, issued arrest warrants for five of the York Party, including Holiday. On March 21st, they returned briefly to Tombstone. I sound like a newscaster. Yep. Where they were joined by Texas Jack Vermillion. What a name, right? right? That also... That, Except for the Texas Park. That would also be a great pirate name. Jack, Jack Vermillion. Yeah. <laughs> On the morning of March 22nd, I guess the next day, a portion of the Earp Posse, including Wyatt Warren, Holiday, Sherman McMaster, and Turkey Creek, yeah. rode about 10 miles east to Pete Spence's ranch to a woodcutting camp. A whole camp for logs, okay. Located, it's a logging camp. <laughs> located off the Chiricahua Road? That word is... That's foreign to me. It might be Hispanic. Usually we're like, it's probably a native word, but no. That looks Hispanic. Chiricahua, I believe. Below the south pass of the Dragoon Mountains. Mm -hmm. What a great name. According to Theodore Judah, who witnessed events at the wood camp, the posse arrived around 11 a.m. and asked for Spence and the Florentino Indian Charlie Cruz. What a name. They learned Spence was in jail. Good for him and that Cruz was cutting wood nearby. They followed the direction Judah indicated, and he soon heard a dozen or so shots. This is the part that kind of makes me laugh, in a way, when Cruz didn't show up the next morning. Like, he sent him, like, yeah, he's over there, listening. Bang, 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 bang. Next morning, he went looking for him and found his body full of bullets. Do you think he just spent the afternoon going, gee, I wonder what that noise was. I wonder where my friend is. Right. (laughs) Two days later... Oh, those distinctively sound like gunshots. Oh, he'll be fine. I'll wait till the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm sure with that accent. (laughs) Two days later, Earp's posse traveled to Iron Springs, located in the Whetstone Mountains, where they expected to meet Charlie Smith, who was supposed to bring $1,000 cash from their supporters in Tombstone. With Wyatt and Holiday in the lead, the six lawmen surmounted a small rise overlooking the springs. They surprised eight cowboys camping near the springs. Wyatt Earp and Holiday left the only record of the fight. Again, you know, the winners get to leave the recordings. Yep. Curly Bill recognized Wyatt Earp in the lead and immediately grabbed his shotgun and fired at him. The other cowboys also drew their weapons and began firing. Earp dismounted, shotgun in hand. Texas Jack Vermillion's horse was shot. Which I'm like, what was a horse participating in this? And you imagine fell. The, the the horse like jumping to the side with pistols <laughs> in hand. I got you, man! <laughs> Warning, animal harm. Right. The horse was shot and fell on Vermilion, yep. pinning his leg and wedging his rifle underneath him. So lacking cover, Holiday Johnson and McMaster retreated. Earp returned Curly Bill, that what a horrifying name, yep. his gunfire with his own shotgun and shot him in the chest because it seems that Holiday is the only one who can actually fire anything. I don't know. Okay, you remember in Tombstone where, like... Probably not. Well, they're in the river and they're fighting and it's, okay. it's one of the stupidest scenes in the movie I've ever seen. It's when he slow motions like, no! <laughs> Boom! No! Boom! It's like, okay, so yeah, that's the scene they're talking about. This is what actually took place. Gotcha. So Curly Bill fell into the water by the edge of the spring and lay dead. So I'm sad for anyone who was drinking downstream. The cowboys fired a number of shots at the Earp party, but the only casualty was the horse. Vermilion's horse, yes. Which was killed, unfortunately. 
Firing his pistol, Wyatt shot Johnny Barnes in the chest and Milt Hicks in the arm. I, I don't know who any of these people are. They're just... They're just cowboys. They're just various people that, I guess, don't matter much. <laughs> Footnotes in history. Vermillion tried to retrieve his rifle, which was under the horse, and exposing himself to the cowboy's gunfire, so Doc helped him gain cover. Wyatt... <laughs> This is kind of funny sounding. Wyatt had trouble remounting his horse because his cartridge belt had fallen down his legs. So, yeah, yeah, now he's like waddling, trying, like, <laughs> wearing the bullet bandolier down his, like, hanging down past knees. his knees. <laughs> kind of awkward, you know? Yeah. Now, Wyatt's long coat was shot through by bullets on both sides, and he was finally able to get onto his horse, probably without much dignity, and retreat. McMaster was grazed by a bullet that cut through the strap of his field glasses. But that seems to be the kind of extent of it. Yeah. But Holiday and the four other members of the posse were still faced with warrants for Stillwell's, Stillwell's death. Yeah. Yeah. So they decided to leave the Arizona Territory for the New Mexico Territory and then on to Colorado. Wyatt and Holiday, who had been fast friends, had some kind of serious disagreement and parted ways in Albuquerque. You know, there's still no record as to why they were arguing. Well, here's what someone found. According to a letter written by former New Mexico Territory Governor Miguel Otero. Okay. Or Otoro, I don't know. Wyatt and Holiday were eating at Fat Charlie's The Retreat Restaurant in Albuquerque. Yeah. When Holiday said something about Earp becoming, quote, a damn Jew boy, Earp became angry and left. End quote. You know, I'd never heard that before. Allegedly, Earp was staying with a prominent businessman and president of New Albuquerque's Board of Trade, Henry Jaffa. Now, Jaffa was Jewish, and based on Otero's letter, Earp had, while staying in the Jaffa's home, honored Jewish tradition by touching the mezuzah upon entering the house. Okay, explain that. What is- I really don't know. It is a Jewish tradition, and I should have looked this up before we recorded it. But anyway, I think it is a, just a respectful thing you do yeah. when entering a Jewish home. But Earp was not terribly thrilled, and uh, his anger at Holiday's ethnic slur might indicate that the relationship between Josephine Marcus, who later became his second or third common-law wife, in the and mo- Wyatt Earp in the was movie, more serious. I was about to say, in the movie, that was the woman who was on stage who was dressed as the devil, the Josephine. Ah, okay. She was the actor that he fell in love with during the movie. She was apparently Jewish. So anyway, that is when apparently Holiday said something about, well... Yeah. <laughs> about how that went down. So that is a theory. And I don't know if that's actually true, but that is somewhat recorded in history. Yeah. On May 15th, 1882, Holiday was arrested in Denver on the Tucson warrant for murdering Frank Stilwell. When Wyatt Earp learned of the charges, he feared that Holiday would not receive a fair trial in Arizona. So Earp asked Bat Masterson, who was then the chief of police of Trinidad, Colorado. I've never, I didn't realize there was a Trinidad in Colorado. Mm-hmm. I'm like, it sounds so exotic. And then it's Colorado. It's Colorado. <laughs> anyway, to help him get Holiday released. And so Masterson just drew up completely fake, or as they say, bunko charges yeah. against Holiday, well, so he could extradite him. You hear it a lot in you hear it a lot in westerns when someone says, "Oh, that's bunk." Oh, okay. It means it's BS. Well, I know there's a game called bunko because my mother plays it every month. Yeah, but I think it's spelled with a K. B U N K. Anyway, well, the extradition hearing was set for May 30th, and late in the evening of May 29th. Woohoo! Oh, sorry. 
Masterson sought help getting an appointment with Colorado Governor Frederick Walker Pitkin. He contacted Ed Cowan. Okay, E.D. E.D. Cowan. Fine. Capital reporter of the Denver, Denver Tribune, who held some political sway in the town. Cowan later wrote, He submitted proof of the criminal design upon Holiday's life. Late as the hour was, I called on Pitkin. His legal reasoning was that the extradition papers for Holiday contained faulty legal reasoning um, or language, and there was already a Colorado warrant out for Holiday, including the bunco charge that Masterson had fabricated. Pitkin was persuaded by the evidence presented by Masterson and refused to honor Arizona's extradition request. So, yeah. (laughs) It worked. Yeah. (laughs) Masterson took Holiday to Pueblo, where he was released on bond two weeks after his arrest. Holiday and Wyatt met again in June of 1882 in Gunnison, not sure where that is, after Wyatt helped to keep his friend from being convicted on murder charges regarding Frank Stilwell, which, as we said, Earp admitted to doing the killing on that one, possibly. Please, please note, in Doc Holliday's history, this is the only time he's ever been charged with murder. Interesting. So Holiday was able to see his old friend one last time in the late winter of 1886 where they met in the lobby of the Windsor Hotel. Sadie Marcus described the skeletal holiday as having a continuous cough and standing on unsteady legs. On July 14th, 1882, Holiday's longtime enemy, and this is one of the first few times we've heard mention of him, Johnny Ringo. Johnny Ringo. What a great name that is. Well, look, darling, it is Johnny Ringo. (laughs) He was found dead in the low fork of a tree. (sighs) In West Turkey Creek Valley, near that Chiricahua Peak, Arizona Territory. Yeah, with a bullet hole in his head. In his right temple, and a revolver was found kind of hanging from a finger. In his right hand, might I add. A coroner's inquest officially ruled his death a suicide. But according to the book, I Married Wyatt Earp, which author and collector Glenn Boyer claimed to have assembled from manuscripts written by Earp's third wife, Mm -hmm. Josephine Marcus... Earp and Holiday traveled to Arizona with some friends in early July, found Ringo, and killed him. Now, Boyer refused to produce his source manuscripts, and reporters wrote that the explanations were conflicting and not credible. So, who killed Johnny Ringo? Well, you see it it in the movie when, you know, that whole Johnny Ringo's, like, thinks it's Wyatt Earp, and then all of a sudden it's... Doc Holiday and he shoots him in the head and everything. It's like, that is completely... <laughs> fabricated. <laughs> yeah, it's fabricated. New York Times contributor Alan Barrow wrote that the book is now recognized by ERP researchers as a hoax. A variant of the story, popularized by Tombstone, holds that Holiday stepped in for ERP in response to a gunfight challenge from Ringo. Did it really happen? Probably not. And that's where you get the... The greatest line of all time. I'm your Huckleberry. <laughs> Evidence is unclear as to Holiday's exact whereabouts on the day of Ringo's death. Records of the District Court of Pueblo indicate that Holiday and his attorney appeared in court in Pe- Pueblo on July 11th and again on July 14th to answer charges of larceny. But a writ of capius was issued for him on the 11th, suggesting that he may have been not may not have been in court that day. The Pueblo Daily Chieftain reported that Holiday was seen in Salida, Colorado on July 7th, 
more than 550 miles from where Ringo's body was found, which that would be a distance. I was about to say, you can't make that. Not on a horse. You can't make that on a car in that time. Right. And then in Leadville on July 18th, Holiday biographer and professional descendant, mm-hmm. Karen Holiday Tanner, noted that there was still an outstanding murder warrant in Arizona for Holiday's arrest, making it unlikely that he would choose to re-enter Arizona yeah, at that it, time. Yeah, it wouldn't be smart. Now, his last known big confrontation took place in Hyman's Saloon in Leadville, Colorado. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, you're so mature. Down to his last dollar, he had pawned his jewelry and then borrowed $5, which was the equivalent of $150 as of 2021, so two years ago. We mentioned this way back, hours ago it feels like. Yep. From William Billy Allen. Allen was a bartender and a special officer at the Monarch Saloon and a former policeman. Now, apparently, Allen was able to carry a gun and make arrests within his own saloon. I guess because he was a policeman at Yeah, just like former, yeah. So, Allen repeatedly demanded that he be repaid by August 19th, quote, or else. And Holiday was a little concerned because... He had no money. Yeah. Doc knew that Alan usually stopped by Hyman's saloon when he finished at the Monarch, so Doc planned to just confront Alan at Hyman's on the 19th. Doc went into Hyman's where he stashed a gun near the door under the bar and waited for Alan to appear. And as Alan left the Monarch, Cy Allen, one of the Monarch's proprietors, warned him against hunting up Holiday just then. Billy Allen answered there'd be no trouble and, with a careless air, walked out towards Hyman's. When Alan came through Hyman's door, Doc reached under the bar, grabbed the gun, and shot him. <laughs> now, the bullet tore into his right arm from the rear, about halfway between the shoulder and the elbow. It just sounds painful. Yep. And passed clear through, severing an artery in its flight. Alan's main artery was sewn up, and he survived, though his arm was always funny afterwards. For this, Doc Holliday was arrested and put on trial. During the trial, the preponderance of testimony at a Holiday's hearing went to show that Allen was not armed, no gun was ever found, but then, by then the overriding Western credo of no duty to retreat had won the day with public sentiment. He claimed self-defense, noting that Allen outweighed him by 50 pounds, probably more, and he feared for his life. So on March 28th, 1885, the jury acquitted Holiday. Well, I mean, looking at the man, you yeah, you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, um, it's obviously self-defense. Yeah. <laughs> An aggressive sort of self-defense, but okay. Yep. He spent, Holiday spent his remaining days in Colorado. Mm -hmm. After a stay in Leadville, he suffered from the high altitude. He increasingly depended on alcohol and laudanum. Laudanum. Kind of a medication back in the day, I guess, predecessor of morphine. Yeah, I was about to say, they don't really use laudanum anymore, it's more morphine. Yeah, but to ease the symptoms of tuberculosis and his health and his skills as a gambler began to seriously deteriorate. Well, I mean, that kind of medication plus the alcohol plus Uh the consumption, yeah. He was not in good shape. Yeah. In 1887, prematurely gray and badly ailing... Holiday made his way to the Hotel Glenwood near the hot springs of Glenwood Springs, Colorado. He hoped to take advantage of the reputed curative powers of the waters, but um, 
These sulfurous fumes from the springs might have actually done him more harm yeah, than good. Yeah. As he lay dying, Holiday is reported to have asked the nurse attending for a shot of whiskey. She told him no, though I did see one source where she gave it to him. Yeah, so we don't know. Yeah, I'd heard that she'd given it to him. But in either case, he looked down at his bootless feet, kind of amused. And the nurse said that his last words were... This is funny. He always figured he would be killed someday with his boots on. And standing. No doubt. Yep. He died at 10 a.m. on November 8th, 1887. He, he was, was 36. 36. Wyatt Earp didn't even learn of Holiday's death until two months afterward. Kate Horany later said that she attended him in his final days, and one contemporary source appears to corroborate her claim. And, of course, he died from tuberculosis. And fellow gamblers and saloon keepers did the early version of GoFundMe, yeah, and they, they helped the, pay for the funeral. Yeah. Like, all of his, the, the gamblers that he worked with, the saloons he worked with, they all paid for, what like, his funeral. Because he was pretty much destitute at that point. Sounds like it. Yeah. His obituary appearing in the Leadville Carbonate Chronicle, what a great name, on November 14th, 1887, stated the following. There is scarcely one in the country who had acquired greater notoriety than Doc Holliday, who enjoyed the reputation of being one of the most fearless men on the frontier, and whose devotion to his friends in the climax of the fiercest ordeal was inextinguishable. It was this, more than any other faculty, that secured for him the reverence of a large circle who were prepared on the shortest notice to rally to his relief. Very eloquent. I love writing from those days. You know? <laughs> yeah, just, they say things so nicely. Yes, absolutely. Now, Holiday is possibly buried. Here we get to the postmortem shenanigans. Yes. In Linwood Cemetery, overlooking Glenwood Springs. Mm-hmm. Now I've seen pictures. You can look it up on YouTube, like oh, yeah. walk-ups to these places, and it is on top of a mountain above the city. And he died in November, so the ground would have been frozen. Frozen, yes. Now some modern authors, such as Bob Bell, speculate that it would have been impossible to get him to the cemetery, let alone bury him. But author Gary Roberts located evidence that other bodies were transported to the Linwood Cemetery at the same time. I was about to say, at the same time, he stated that, well, they were taking bodies up there every day. Why didn't, you know, why couldn't they take Doc Holliday? Contemporary newspaper reports explicitly state that Holliday was buried in Linwood Cemetery. Yep. But the exact location is not certain. There is a memorial that states he's somewhere on the grounds. Yeah. And you can look up pictures of this, and it's, it's a lovely memorial. It's fenced off, and people will, like, leave shot glasses of whiskey for him <laughs> and playing cards and dice and stuff like that. So Now, the contrasting view is that some of Holiday's relatives, um, upon his death, right before he was scheduled to be put in the ground, the family secretly paid for the body to be transported, transported to, Georgia. to Georgia Yep, to be laid to rest in the Oak Hill Cemetery in downtown Griffin. The claim they claim that he's alongside his father, both of them in unmarked graves. Yep. In Oak Hill, where all the other holidays are buried. But given his reputation and kind of growing fame as a kind of Wild West hero, they left the grave unmarked so it wouldn't be disturbed. And to support the idea of a father and son side by side burial, it is true that no marked grave of his father can be found well, in Linwood or anywhere else. Um, there is a YouTube thing that you can look up called "In Search of Doc Holiday," mm-hmm. and they go to both grave sites and they find two gravestones, just blank markers side by side. 
And then on the on either side, there's holidays. So that is kind of a curious tale yeah. there. Because the father, you know, he was a wealthy landowner, one-time mayor. You would think he would have a gravestone. Yeah. Some kind of marker, something. As you say, headstones for the rest of the family can be found. Yeah. There is a historical marker of the twin graves at Oak Hill, but it too poses a question of, Doc Holiday, final resting place, question mark? Question mark. mark. <laughs> and as we said, it wouldn't be one of our podcasts without some post-mortem shenanigans. Indeed. Oh, and this is just a total aside because we are Disney nerds. Doc Holliday and Kate Horany have photographs. Well, they're profiles in that kind of silhouette. Sort of H- like the cameo silhouette? Yeah. Hung up in the music room of Ravenswood Manor, which is the name of the Phantom Manor in Disneyland Paris. The French really love the Old West. They and do. Their, I, their haunted mansion has ties to Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. So they're in a Disney ride. Sorry. And incidentally, we have his wanted poster hanging up right behind us. We do. Yep. We do, because you are a fan. Yes, we do. And that is the wanted poster that was made possible by Kate, wasn't it? Yes. That is the one of, like, when they said that he was wanted for murder for uh, robbing the the stagecoach. Now, Doc was an interesting character in the West. he was unusual. Highly educated and very refined. Indeed. Where such things were kind of uncommon. (laughs) He was fluent in Latin and other languages. He played the piano. He was a nappy dresser. Mm -hmm. And... By that way... You mean snappy or absolutely very well dressed? Oh, yeah. A lot of people wouldn't know what nappy means. Th- that was a term they used back then. Yeah. but he was well dressed. He was yeah. lovely looking. Now, not a fop or a dandy in any not way, quite, but yeah. well dressed and displayed the manners of a southern gentleman. And from what I understand, spoke as a southern gentleman, which also means you could say very mean things, but in a very sweet voice. So he could rub people the wrong way. Bless your heart. There were a number of... Okay, so Gary Roberts, the, one of the biographers, yeah. says there were a number of people who did not like Doc for a variety of reasons, I suppose. He was a person who could be moody, but he had friends every place that he went. He could be moody, but you can kind of attribute this to the tuberculosis, the alcohol, the laudanum, him dying. Of oh, yeah. Cool, like, you're going to be a moody sort. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I don't blame him. Like, yes, he rubbed people the wrong way, but he had his friends. Yeah. His friends knew what he was going through and stuck with him. He's sort of the Eeyore of the group. He really is. Doc is frequently portrayed as if he's some kind of, like, well, Wyatt Earp's sidekick. After the gunfight in Tombstone, though, and once they completed the bloody vendetta against those who ambushed the Earp brothers after the OK Corral... Holiday and Earp drifted apart, they as were, we said. Yeah, they... They just didn't need each other anymore, Robert says. I don't think that their friendship was over, necessarily. They just went different ways. I mean, you see, that happens nowadays. Oh, you know? yeah. People it's, drift apart. Yeah, you just... It's not that you grow apart. You just kind of drift apart. You kind of live your own life. Would you like to read the Wyatt Earp quote of Doc Holiday? Uh, I found him a loyal friend and good company. He was a dentist whom necessity had made a gambler, a gentleman who disease had made a vagabond, a philosopher whom life had made a caustic wit, a long, lean, blonde fellow, nearly dead with consumption, and at the same time the most skillful gambler, nerviest, speediest, deadliest man with a six-gun I ever knew. And that was, of course, Wyatt Earp speaking of Doc Holliday. So that was a very long one. Yes, it was. And a lot of that was convoluted and mentioned a lot of places and a lot of people. But since we skipped last week, it seemed only fair. (laughs) And we hope you enjoyed coming along for the ride. Now, obviously, we have only 
barely scratched the surface on the topic of Doc Holliday. There oh, are yeah. Full biographies written about him, and we only have like our hour, 45 minutes to an hour to cover our stuff, but we've hit the highlights. Oh, yeah. Please feel free to watch any number of TV shows or movies with questionable amounts of realism involved. Yeah, yeah. We still think Tombstone's one of the best stylistically. Uh, oh, yes. Well, and I, I have yet to see Cesar Romero. Yes, that is Cesar Romero who played the Joker playing Doc Holliday. There are some interesting people. Yeah. Adam West even played. Adam West played Doc Holliday a couple of times. Yes, in different shows. Yes. But I think Val Kilmer is one of my favorites, but I haven't seen them all. Several of them are way too old. I'm like, there's no way that man oh, can yeah, be younger yeah, than 36. Yeah, like he was, he was 36 years old. Yet he was prematurely graying and skinny, but he wasn't old. Yeah, he just kind of looked like I've baby. seen some where he looks like he's in his 50s, and it's like, like no, that never that. happened. Anyway, we hope you enjoyed this coverage, even with like the only teensy bit of spookiness. But as always. Please visit our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon. Feel free to leave us some likes and five-star reviews. Let us know what you think of the episodes, particularly this one. We are always interested to hear what you have to say yeah, about it. Yeah, feedback is always a, a, a good thing. Even if it's, we'd like to hear Heather talking less, or fewer weird jokes from Tony. Indeed. <laughs> or more, you know. Yeah. More's, more's good, too. <laughs> Give us more weirdness! <laughs> I'm your Carolina girl, Heather. And I'm your Florida man, Tony. Until next time, bye, bye y'all. I didn't think you had it in you. I'm your huckleberry. Why, Johnny Ringo. You look like somebody just walked over your grave. But it's not with you, Holiday. I beg to differ, sir. We started a game we never got to finish. <coughs> Play for blood, remember? I was just fooling about. I wasn't.